Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. I'm the lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Also a part of the Great Commission Collective. I serve on the board of directors at GCC, and our church is a part of that collective of churches that is committed to planting churches and strengthening leaders. We're excited about new churches that are being planted here in the United States and around the world that share our gospel-centered distinctives. If you want to find out more about the Great Commission Collective, you can go to our website, gccollective.org. There's a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. We'd love to have you find out more. And let me also say, if this podcast is something you listen to regularly, let me encourage you to share it with other pastors you know. Uh, like it, subscribe to it, all of the things you do with podcasts that help get the word out. We would appreciate that. So if you're a regular Bounce listener, uh, please spread the word about the Bounce. And if you're new to the Bounce, welcome. Uh, You can go back and listen to past episodes and find out more. Again, our goal is to help encourage and equip uh, pastors and church members, church staffs, along with the church planters And you can find out more about the Great Commission Collective at gccollective.org. Today, we want to talk about how we minister and how we care for our own souls as pastors in the midst of a a digital technology that has become so pervasive and so all-consuming. Samuel James is the author of a book called Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. And the conversation you're going to hear will look at the impact of, of the medium in each of our lives. We're going to pay special attention during this conversation to how we as pastors need to uh, manage our digital engagement so that we can be effective to do what God's called us to do and how we can be alert to digital realities and how that impacts our congregation. So that's enough introduction. Let's get into the conversation with Samuel James. If if I'm honest, I almost don't want to have this conversation with you, Samuel, mm-hmm. by the way, and, and welcome to this. And and part of this is because I'm concerned that I will be challenged in this conversation, as I was by your book, that I need to take a more critical look at my own personal digital engagement. And honestly, I like my own personal digital engagement. I, <laughs> I like what, what I have, and I don't want to be challenged or mm-hmm. convicted. I just want to keep figuring out how to manage all of this and, and move along. So um, that's just the cards on the table as we, we, we start this. Explain for listeners um, the title, because mm-hmm. some will see the title of the book and think, oh, this is about how you can Google uh, an order of service for your church or get access <laughs> to the Book of Common Prayer. You're not suggesting I have a whole bunch of liturgies for online church available to you, right? No, actually something closer to the opposite of that. Uh, So the the title Digital Liturgies kind of refers to uh, what I consider to be the heart-shaping practices and habits that we find 
kind of endemic to the internet. And when I say the internet, I especially mean what's often called the social internet. So that's social media, streaming services, um, kind of places that we go to experience life. Um, And so early on in the book, I, I talk about the understanding of liturgies as something that drives down in us the the truth or the plausibility of that truth. So a church's liturgy is its order of worship, and it's this set of practices that the church does week in and week out. And all of these practices from the call to worship, from corporate scripture reading to a prayer of confession, to the preaching of the word, the taking of the Lord's Supper, all of these things together, they create kind of this environment where when we're inside that environment, we feel the reality of the gospel. So none of that happens apart from faith, but as we come to Christ, in faith, these practices play a role in kind of shaping us to be certain kinds of people. Uh, It would be one thing to walk into a church and the only thing going on was one person standing at the door telling you the gospel is true. Well, you might believe them, but that doesn't have the same affective consequence in your heart as the collection of practices and uh, liturgical ordering does. So it's because of the practices of the local church uh, that our hearts kind of become plausibility structures themselves for the gospel. Um, And what I want to do in the book is consider whether or not the internet is kind of like a church. It's kind of like a, a habitat that has its own kind of spirit directed heart shaping practices that turn us into certain kinds of people that make certain ideas more plausible, others' ideas less plausible, uh, and that ultimately have kind of this bending effect on the kind of people that we are. So if we go to church to drive down the truth of the gospel into our hearts so that it makes a practical difference in our daily lives, what are the effects of being immersed in the social internet day in and day out? What kind of truths are being driven down in in our heart there? Uh, So the book is really an interrogation of five in in particular, uh, digital liturgies, five attitudes, five kind of value systems that the internet intrinsically pushes down onto us to make its belief systems and its value systems more plausible. So should we clarify here at the front end that you're not a Luddite, that you're not advocating moving back to typewriters and that you you're online Mm -hmm. you utilize technology and you're not anti-technology no the the book is really not a uh, a manifesto against technology it's actually a manifesto for understanding what technology is even more so as we think critically about uh, digital technology in particular uh, i've been very helped by the work of nicholas carr who's Uh, 2010 book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, um, is not written from a Christian perspective, but is written from a social science perspective. And what Carr discovered was that people who learn how to read and communicate through the internet. So think of the phrase that's sometimes used, digital natives. So these are people who've grown up particularly with with very few memories that are not conditioned in some way by having access to the internet. Uh, People who learn to experience the world through online media, 
become certain kinds of readers, they become certain kinds of thinkers, and there's a measurable and even cognitive difference between that type of learning and reading and communicating and the type of learning and reading and communicating that we do offline. So the, the question really is not, are we going to turn back the clock? Are we going to go back to 1992? Are we going to just divest completely of all these digital technologies? Even if that impulse was something we were willing to do, we can't do that for our neighbors. We're not, right. we're not going to put Pandora back in her box. So I think the alternative is that we have to understand what these technologies are at an even closer level. And uh, I think one mistake that Christians have made, probably especially in the last 20 years or so, is that we have focused exclusively uh, and kind of one-sidedly on the content of the internet. So focused almost entirely on what websites to not go to, mm -hmm. how do we combat things on the internet that we don't want to consume. So we've, we've been one single-mindedly focused on content, but we haven't thought about form. We haven't thought about what, what the internet is what its effects might be uh, on us, even at a subconscious level. And there are secular thinkers who have been meditating on that for a while. And the book really is simply an effort to bring those observations, those kind of common grace observations that we get in books like Nicholas Carr and Neil Postman, into conversation with the theological principles that we already have in God's word and to see what the Lord is, would have us do in a digital age. I am aware and have become aware of this over the last five plus years that I am probably reading more on a daily basis than I ever have at any point in my life. And yet I am reading fewer books than I ever have mm -hmm. in my life. I've, I've been thinking back. I, I will often, as I'm doing sermon prep or working on things, I'll remember this book I read and, and how I highlighted it. And I've got them there on the shelf and I, I'm glad I have them and can go get them. Now I'll remember a blog post. So I'm aware of the fact that I am um, reading more broadly than I probably ever have, but mm -hmm. less deeply mm -hmm. than I, I have. And I say all of that and go, part of me likes the fact that I have the broader scope, mm -hmm. but I'm also, I, I'm, I'm concerned, but not enough to change my habits at this point. I'm <laughs> concerned about the fact that I don't have as many highlighted books that I'm ending the year with than I used to have back before the internet came along. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating because that exact dilemma is what led Nicholas Carr to writing this book. So the book grew out of an essay that he wrote in 2008 for The Atlantic. And in the beginning of the essay, which is titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Which is yeah. a really nice, punchy essay. The beginning of that essay is Nicholas Carr kind of thinking out loud about the fact that he can't finish books anymore mm -hmm. and he can't kind of follow a line of argument as well as he used to be able to. And he reflects on like, what, what is happening to me? What is something is some switch in my brain kind of flipped in a bad way. And I just don't know how to change that. Uh, and what Carr discovered was that like, 
just about every American in the 2000s, he had kind of pivoted to a almost dominant online media. Like that's most of what he read was online. And he found out that it was around that time that he started to consume more and more online content that his tolerance, his uh, his patience with analog reading and specifically with kind of the, the, the quiet kind of measured thinking that we tend to do with a single piece of writing where we, you know, we, we mark it, we underline it, we kind of close the book and sit with it for a day or two. He noticed that his capacity for that kind of engagement had declined at almost exactly the same proportion that his online intake had come up. And that led him to discover uh, the, the science of cognition and how we are affected by the medium of what we, of what we consume. And I, I think the theological significance of that is important because you know, when God chose to give us his word, when he chose to reveal himself to us, he gave us a book. Uh, we, we have to reckon with the fact that God is a God of the written word. God is a God of careful thought. He invites us to meditate on his word. He invites us to uh, think deeply about who he is, about the world that he's made, about the salvation that he's given us. And this is an invitation to do exactly the type of thing that if Nicholas Carr is correct, that the internet actually undermines. So how how do we understand the internet as not intrinsically evil, not something that we have to divest of completely, but also as something that's not really neutral either, mm. as something that kind of has its own intellectual kind of DNA, if you will. And that intellectual DNA might, and I think does, make our contemplation of God, our contemplation of his word and his revealed truth more difficult. And it makes us into certain kinds of people who are less able to be shaped by the kinds of things that the Lord has for us. Yeah, I, I can see, again, the, the, the fact that, that I'm exposed to more thinking on a broader level, there's benefit to that. Mm-hmm. But the absence of contemplation, deep reflection, deeper meditation, um, that's going to shape me spiritually Mm -hmm. in a particular way. That's what you're saying in the book. Be alert to the fact that if this is your diet, this is what your soul is going to look like after a while. This is the part of your soul that's going to shrivel or atrophy um, if if you keep these practices and don't bring some habits back in that will foster meditation and contemplation. Have I got that right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and in the book I give a couple concrete examples of this. So, you know, as as we tend to think of maybe particular doctrines that are a little bit more difficult or controversial or counterintuitive. What I have found, and and this may resonate with some listeners, is that the more kind of demanding, the more kind of textured the doctrine is, the less likely I am to see kind of robust uh, conversation about it online. Instead, what I tend to see on social media are people talking in very generic kind of lumping terms. So the example here is to talk about, you know, gender. So talk about the role of men and women in the church. 
well, the, the role of men and women in the church is a beautiful doctrine that is rooted in creational norms. And you have to really think about it. It's, it's, a, it's not just by fiat, okay, women can't be pastors and you're not allowed to ask why. There's actually a, an entire creational theology. There's an embodied theology behind that. Well, do you see, I would ask listeners, do you see on social media, like really robust and careful and measured conversation about that doctrine. And for me, the answer has been no. What I do find are people being accused of being abusive or people being accused of uh, not being intelligent. I see that kind of level of conversation all the time. And that's, that's kind of what I mean when I say the theological implications of, okay, maybe it's not just that we have forgotten how to think about theology. Maybe these tools that we're using to communicate actually shape our conversation themselves. Maybe we are actually being affected by the medium that we're using. And I think there's many more examples, whether you want to talk about the role of Christianity in politics or whether you want to talk about, um, uh, you know, proper church government or things like that. I think there's so much evidence that there is a distorting effect of these technologies on the way we think about complex uh, doctrinal truth. And, And it's one reason why you turn on Christian Twitter or Christian Facebook, and you're as likely to be discouraged and frustrated by what you find there as you are to be encouraged. So am I drawn to these things because of fear of missing out? Like I'm not going to, I want to make sure I'm relevant and in the conversation. Am I drawn to it because of purient fleshly motivations that who doesn't like a good online brawl, you know, that you can take mm-hmm. sides in and and who doesn't like the ability to to launch a missile that gets retweeted by a bunch of people or are, are those the I'm trying to think, why would I if I'm sitting down and going, I've got this book I really want to read or I can I can just, uh, you know, surf for a while and mm-hmm. pick up an article here and there. Why am I more tempted to want the snack than the meal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I think those two motivations can be at play at the same time. I, I think there's a part of us that, you know, same reason we prefer to watch TV rather than exercise. Like, <laughs> right? It's just it's just more comfortable. It's it's more uh, it's it's more comforting to our kind of just natural inert state. Um, but I also think something that's important to recognize is that uh, social media and and the social internet is designed by people. So, so this is an accident. These aren't things that just spring out of the ground. There's an, there's an algorithm to them. There's coding to them. There's a reason that you open your apps and you see what you see. Mm-hmm. There's a logic to that. And, and what the, was the Netflix documentary that talked about that? The, I think it's the, the social dilemma. Yeah, yeah that's the right. Social and, dilemma. And it's worth watching because you watch that and go, oh, there, there are people who, for their own purposes, are trying to manipulate our behavior. Absolutely, absolutely, and and if listeners will watch that documentary, what they will discover is that the quickest way, according to people who work in this industry, people who have designed the the algorithms for Google and for Twitter and for uh, Instagram, according to to people who know how this works, the quickest way to get. Uh, traffic online, the quickest way to hook people to to your particular medium is to engage them with negative emotion. 
show them something that makes them angry, show mm-hmm. them something that is likely to elicit a hot response, uh, show them, show them something that will get kind of the, the frustration and the, and the antipathy going. And you have by far the most reliable way of hooking them to the platform and positive emotion doesn't make people addicted to the medium. Negative emotion does. And in the social dilemma, uh, there's there's a particular a sequence. I remember, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I remember this one particular interview where this person is going through how they code the algorithm. And if you tend to stop and to click on things that have kind of more outrageous headlines or to engage with comments that are using more extreme language, I think they, they talk about the word Trump, how the word Trump was a reliable indicator to the algorithm that this was an attention-getting post. Yeah. If you do that, then the system memorizes that and feeds you more and more of this. So I think the answer to your question or or important dimension of the answer to your question, why do we do this? Why would I be drawn to it? Is that there's a logic in the technology itself. It's built in. It's, you know, it's kind of like a food additive or, uh, you know, ingredient that you would put in to make junk food more addictive. That that kind of thing exists. Like it's, it's put into the product to draw us back to it. And we, we have to reckon with that. We have to reckon with the fact that we're not as in control of these tools as we think we are. So as a pastor, someone whose assignment it is to uh, study, understand, communicate the gospel, to, to dig into God's word, to learn from it, um, what, what are your recommendations for how I govern my own media usage week in and week out so that I can be faithful to what God's called me to. I, I say that knowing I love the fact that when I'm doing sermon prep and I have a question, huh, I wonder wonder what this word means. I wonder how I wonder what so and so has said about this. I can just Google that and it's there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the research capability of Google is a treasure. Absolutely. Um, so I'm grateful for that, but I'm also aware that once I've Googled that, I can also go down a rabbit hole for the next 45 minutes that have me ending up watching old Crosby, Stills, and Nash videos on YouTube that I, that's not what I started with in the first place, right? Exactly. So, yeah, so exactly. what are, if, if you're sitting with a pastor today and you're saying, brother, look, I know the job you have in front of you. Let me just encourage you to have kind of these governing principles about how you handle your own media usage. That's a really good question. Uh, I would kind of begin with uh, a diagnostic of, is there anything uh, kind of in your daily, weekly rhythms that would naturally limit the amount of time that you spend on social media platforms, on the social internet? So uh, what that might look like is, is there any time that it's just you and a book and a notebook? Are are there any kind of built-in... times that you can engage with the written word, that you can engage thoughtfully with scripture or with with, uh, material that is relevant to a sermon series that you're working on? Is there time that you can actually get away? You can turn off your phone or put it on do not disturb. uh, And you can, you can kind of disappear into, uh, into this more kind of thoughtful space without kind of constantly feeling the pull of the notification of checking to see if there's new content. Um, if there's nothing like that in your life as a pastor, we'll start there. Just build that into your day. Maybe say, 
follow something like I think it's Andy Crouch's kind of um, uh, rhythm for for kind of cultivating a, a technological resistance to addiction. Uh, he, you know, he takes an hour a day, a day a week, and I think it's one week a year uh, where he has no access to social media to social internet technologies. So right there, one day a week, just one day a week, uh, you know, log out, give your spouse or someone else the password. If you have to, uh, you know, turn off the notifications and kind of create that space, create that natural boundary. I think, I think for a lot of people, that is the hardest step, but it's also the step that kind of gets you over the hump. Uh, what, what I've seen in my own life and in the lives of many other people is that once the initial rhythm of constantly being connected is broken, people, it, it almost feels like you're coming up for air. It almost feels like they've, they've been holding their breath and now they can breathe. It's like, oh, I, I wasn't on Facebook for the last three or four days and I'm coming and I'm like, why do I even want to be on this? I, I, I just don't see a usefulness to it anymore. It's when we're immersed, when we're addicted, when we're hooked, that it feels the most inescapable and popping that bubble simply requires creating space. And, and when you create that space, I think you'll find yourself uh drawn to a different way of living. Um, and then another thing, and I alluded to this in that answer, is to involve other people, to, to simply ask those closest to you, hey, do you sense that I'm very distracted? Am I, am I constantly on my phone? Am I constantly checking email? Am I constantly checking my notifications? Do, do you sense that I can be uh, emotionally present with you when I'm with you? Do you sense that I'm attending, I'm attending to all my responsibilities uh, in, in an appropriate way? That's a hard question to ask. That's a humbling question to ask because you may not like the answer. The answer may be, hey, I really feel like you've been distant. I feel like every time I, every time I look up, you know, you're checking something on your phone. I've, had, I've been on the wrong end of those conversations with my spouse. Uh, and so there's a there's an ego check there. You have to humble yourself enough. But I really think that, it, and I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of those close to me, that when we involve other people, that forms an incredibly strong resistance to what I'm talking about. It's it's when we find each other, when we're kind of mutually encouraging one another, hey, like put that away, or hey, you know, you said this online, but I don't think that's super thoughtful. So let's talk about that. I think that is what kind of forms the initial resistance, because if we're being honest, one thing that the digital age does very well is isolate us. We are all kind of stuck to devices that are the size of our hand. And we're, we're literally physically looking down and missing each other. So I, I think that's two really good places to start. I'm aware of the fact that if I go fill up my car with gas, there's going to be this two minute period where I am, I'm there with nothing to do. And it's almost like if I don't have my phone available in that two minute period, I get a little panicky, a little edgy. That's those, these are the symptoms that yeah. maybe my life is not as ordered as it ought to be. And, and that my soul is agitated and needs some rest. Right. Yeah. I, I remember a very, funny thing I heard a few years ago, somebody said, yeah, I went to a coffee shop and there was a, a guy there with a cup of coffee and a newspaper and just sitting there like a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I thought that's right. Like, you know, what is, what is actually just so normal and natural now uh -huh. looks 
and feels very odd. Uh, and that's a that's a great that's a great invitation, I think, to us as Christians. Um, wh- when there's something that's just gnawing at our sense of peace, when we, when we can't get our minds to quiet down, when we're constantly feeling like we're missing something or we we have to be engaged in this or that, uh, that's not peace. That's not rest. That's not that's not what the Lord intends for His people. That's He intends for us to to work and to rest and to be where we are and to put our attention on the things and the people and the responsibilities that he's put in front of us. And, and that's no way to live. And so I really, I, I hope that for listeners, I, I hope that the book digital liturgies will be an invitation to, to live a life of radical peace. One more illustration of this in, in my life, just cause it's, as I'm having this conversation with you, I'm, I'm thinking about my own digital patterns. I had the opportunity this past summer to have a sabbatical. And my wife and I got in the car. We put 10,000 miles on our car. We went from our home in Little Rock to uh, Huntington Beach, California, and then drove back through Little Rock and then went to Coney Island, New York. So we Atlantic to the Pacific. We did the big road trip. Eight national parks. and, And I was aware in the midst of that that we were less digitally tethered than we normally are. As we drove, we listened to some audio books. Here's how I became aware of that. At some point, I heard some news headline and I went, oh, I didn't even know that was happening. Well, it's unthinkable in my day-to-day life that I would go a few hours without knowing what the latest headline is because I would have alerts popping up on my devices telling me these kinds of things. And what I remember was when I would learn about these things and I'd have this feeling of, "Uh uh-oh, I'm out of touch. And then there was like, no, wait a sec. How important is this breaking news anyway? How have I been manipulated to thinking all of this is urgent and crisis when a lot of it is just it's this week's dust up and it's not going to have any significance Mm -hmm. beyond this news cycle? And so I I just came back from that thinking, um, I, I don't need to stay as on top of things as I felt like I needed to stay in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a situation somewhat similar to that a few years ago. So my, I don't have Instagram, but my wife does. And and sometimes we'll kind of just look at what's, what people are posting together. And a few years ago, we started following the journey of a particular influencer. And we didn't know who this person was. We didn't have any personal relationship, but they were, they were documenting very extensively the journey that they were going on with their daughter who had suffered a very traumatic brain injury. And so it was daily updates, pictures of her in the hospital, you know, a very heavy stuff, very emotionally distressing stuff. And it was, we were so engrossed in it and we were, we were praying with them. Um, but it did it dawn on me one day that this was causing an actually a pretty significant emotional mm-hmm. burden to me. And there was nothing I could do about it. Mm-hmm. I could not reach out and serve these people. I could not give them a call. I, I, I couldn't even email them. I didn't know who they were. The only relationship I had with them was that they were publishing things on the internet mm-hmm. that I could see. And yet the, the, the illusion of proximity was being created by this content. And I realized that I was carrying an emotional burden that I could do absolutely nothing about. 
And so I just had to back away and say, hey, I actually don't yeah. think it's that healthy for us to, to, to walk through this with them because we, we can't minister to them in a real way. And I think a lot of people feel that way, that there's the weight of the world's knowledge on them right now. And there's it's just crowding out the, the sense of place and the sense of peace that I, I think we're called to. If we're following somebody's drama on Instagram, we're not actually bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ, right? I, I, th- I think so. I, th- I think, you know, when it, attention is a finite resource, uh, you, you have to take attention away from something else to give it to another thing. Okay. Let's, let's kind of wrap all of this up by talking as, as pastors about the fact that the people we're talking to every Sunday morning are swimming in this sea day in and day out. It's why pastors are routinely having the conversations about attention span and how long can my sermon go and how long before people go, I can't stay with you. And they get out their devices and start checking their social media in the middle of your sermon. (laughs) So how do we shepherd well and how do we minister effectively in the midst of this reality that we're doing? We have to understand as missionaries, the culture we're living in, How do we bring the gospel to bear knowing that this is what the audience we're ministering to is dealing with? Well, I really think the answer is to use as much PowerPoint and interpretive dance as you possibly can. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's not the answer. Um, I, I think this is a challenge that that every pastor uh, is is having to work through. And, uh, and it's not a challenge that we need to complain about. This is just part of what it means to minister to this particular generation. And every generation has their own version of this. And uh, this is what it means to serve the Lord faithfully. So I think that the best thing that a pastor and a church can do to kind of disarm the charm, so to speak, of these devices is to create a culture in their churches where it feels like it's not just downloading content Sunday after Sunday. I think part of the reason that streaming church, that people who never actually go into the church, but just stream it. I do think one of the reasons that has had the power over people that it had is because they were going to church, but it was they were just there to download the sermon. They were just there to download the music. It was this very machine-like experience of walk in, mm-hmm. watch, walk out. And so the thing you cannot do, and and we've seen this so much that even as my generation is the most connected, quote unquote, generation, it's the most lonely generation. It's the most isolated generation. Mm-hmm. So the phones that we have and the social media memberships that we use are not actually connecting us. So I think every church has to start with, okay, is, is our church culture one in which people come, they sit down as fast as they can, they download the service, and then they leave as fast as they can? Or is there is this thick relational dynamic at work? Are people really coming up to one another and saying, hey, how's your day? How's your family? Uh, are, are people investing in one another before and after the service? Is there the kind of community in this church that a phone could not replace, that a social media membership could not replace? And you know, I believe in what one Puritan pastor called the uh, the expulsive yeah. power of a new affection, a new affection for each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord will push out 
I think the illusion and the often self-protective instincts that we have when we hide behind our digital devices. So on a pragmatic level, two questions. The first is related <laughs> to PowerPoint. I mean, you brought that up. I I use PowerPoint extensively with my sermons in part because I'm thinking mm-hmm. this is going to help people stay with me, track where I'm going. It's going to help the 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 pedagogy. It's mm-hmm. it, but I'm also then I, I'll go and hear somebody who does a 45 minute sermon with zero visuals, and I go that was compelling. I just wonder. Am I that compelling or would would people start to tune out if I didn't have the visuals supporting what I was doing? So what what are your thoughts on whether we provide visuals with our sermons or not? Yeah, I, I think this is where we have to give each other a lot of Christian freedom. This is These are issues of prudence and issues of wisdom that um, – are, are not black and white. So the, the first thing I would probably exhort listeners to, to think of is minister to your people. Don't minister to somebody else's people. Mm. So don't minister to the people you wish you had <laughs> minister to the people you actually have. And whatever that means for you, content yourself with that in the Lord. Um, the other thing I would say is I think oftentimes we underestimate the um, the power that the word can have in captivating people's attention. Um, we know that the word is powerful. We we know it's sharper than any two edged sword. We we say these scriptural truths to ourselves, but we also kind of we're afraid in the back of our mind week after week that it's it's just not enough. Like nobody's paying attention. Um, and I think we need to recover a sense of confidence that the word can actually captivate people's uh, hearts and minds. We don't have to uh, be anxious about whether the Lord will draw people to his word because he will. He promises to do that. Um, and so I, I think we can walk with confidence that even though we do have a very distracted culture, even though we're fighting these things in ourselves and attention spans are short, uh, that the, you know, the power of an attention span is not greater than the power of the word. And oftentimes what happens is our attention spans are actually expanded when we find something that, that truly resonates with us at a heart level. And, you know, maybe we, we would never sit for a, you know, 50 minute lecture on, you know, biology, but we might sit for a 50-minute testimony of how the Lord just radically worked in this person's life, took them from spiritual death to spiritual life, changed everything about them, uh, because that resonates with us. That's compelling. Uh, so I maybe that just start there. Two things. Don't minister to the people you don't have, minister to the people you do have. But then also, I walk with confidence that the Lord can actually bring attention on himself through his word. That's good. Last question related to the use of technology. I'm remembering back as the pandemic was wrapping up. And by the way, I think most of us were glad when we shut down our churches for a season, whether it was a few weeks or longer. We were glad that we had the ability to stay Mm -hmm. connected at some level in a pandemic time. And we were glad that we had already been streaming our services because it made it easy for folks to check in and we could continue the weekly worship experience, even a pandemic time. But as it started to end and people were starting to come back to church, I remember 
Colin Hansen saying, shut down your streaming mm-hmm. and and do this or or make it password protected so that only those who, uh, you know, have a legitimate uh, an excused absence, mm-hmm. a note from their their doctor or their parent, they only they can log on to your streaming. Um, we've kept our streaming up and I'm always glad when I hear from a missionary couple that we support who say we loved being able to tune in last week, or I got a note this week from a family. They're out doing college visits. They were not here on Sunday, but they said, we loved your message on Jude. And Mm -hmm. so I'm glad that there's some ability to stay connected. And yet I wonder, are we enabling Mm -hmm. a, a level of dysfunction among people that we don't want to be enabling and having them think, oh, well, I do church online and that's mm-hmm. how I do it. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think once again, and I'm not trying to get out from under the question. I, I, I do think that we need to we need to interact with grace with each other on this because not every pastor is going to come to the same conclusion. Uh, and that's fine. We can kind of respect each other enough to, to come to slightly different um, judgments on that. These are not They're hills, not to, hills die to die on, on right? No. Gavin Ortland's not going to no. write a book that explains why. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. We're, we're not dying on these hills. I I think I would say, though, so, so our church here in Louisville, our practice is to restrict the live stream. There is no public live stream. And, and the, the live stream is only uh, granted to uh, people who have a long-term inability to come to the service. So people who's chronic health issues just don't allow them to. Those are people who are given the live stream and are able to, to pipe in. And the lack of a public live stream, I think, has a logic to it that I think resonates with me personally. Um, that I think I think as as useful as it can be, and as many times as I was glad for it back in, in 2020, um, I do think that a lot of people struggle to conceptualize church as anything more than a place to hear music and to hear a sermon. And so uh-huh. with that mentality, they don't feel an intuitive difference between a streaming church and a real church. Right. And so I think that a church that uh, you know urges its members to, to gather collectively is saying something very profound about what church is. Look, church is not just the music and the sermon. Uh, Church is the assembly of God's people together, God's presence being among his people in a way that completely transcends uh, what is downloadable through a podcast episode or streamable through a, a media player. Um, so, so that has always resonated with me. At the same time, uh, I, I think there are situations and particular contexts in which this live stream doesn't have to be uh, a detraction from that, particularly if you know, if a pastor is getting up in front of the church week after week and, and kind of you know takes one second to kind of address the live stream audience and to say, we would love to see you in person. Uh, please come. Uh, please, as you're able, be a part of our fellowship because we believe that uh, the church is the body of Christ and the body of Christ is the body assembled. Uh, so just having that robust theology, even as you're, as you're speaking to people who may be on the fence or, or maybe kind of not feeling that as much. Yeah, and by the way, it's one of the reasons why among our pastors, we will correct one another. If we refer to the platform as the stage, as opposed to the platform, mm-hmm. if we call the congregation, the audience, as opposed to the congregation, they, I mean, these, these sound like we're being the word police.
piece, but we're trying to reinforce right. a, a way of thinking that we're not on a stage, we're on a platform, and, and there is a congregation, and it's not in the auditorium that we're meeting. It's in the, the worship center as opposed to the auditorium. And I, I think these things mm-hmm. do reinforce just a way of thinking about what's going on on Sunday morning, where it's a participatory event as opposed to a, uh, a one-way mm-hmm. delivery event for us. Um, so after reading The Shallows, meditating on this, writing your own book, mm-hmm. what are you doing differently now that you weren't doing five years ago? Uh, so I've, I've really discovered the value in kind of using technology to rein in technology. So I have an app on my computer named Freedom. Uh, and Freedom is this very powerful kind of uh, lockdown app that you can program uh, to say, hey, I want to block all social media you know, maybe I can't block emails because I, I need to be able to respond, but I want to block all social media. I want to block entertainment sites for, you know, three, four hours, a whole day, whatever you want. Uh, and that helps, I think, me just kind of come up for air, like I was talking about. Like if you're just in a in a hmm. season where it's so easy to get distracted, and that's me very often, then use technology to kind of serve your values. This is what Cal Newport, another tech writer says, use technology to serve your values instead of serving technology's values. And I think that's very profound and something that Christians can practice. Um, My wife has my social media passwords. So when I want to log in and contribute to to Twitter, I have to go say, hey, can you log me in? I have her Instagram password, same thing. And so it's, it's kind of this mutual awareness of how much we're on and how much we're off. And we're kind of able to, uh, to help each other with that. So an organic relational kind of mutual accountability, I don't love that word because it sounds very stodgy, but just mutual strengthening of each other. And then also using technology to, uh, to rein in technology. And then also, I think one thing that I have really been convicted of, uh, in the past year or so is just the power of just walking away for an entire day, an entire week. Uh, so Mm. really just putting distance between myself and a lot of these, especially more addictive platforms for maybe a few days or a week at a time. And what I discover is that there is just a purifying effect that happens where I can think clearer. I feel uh, not as stressed and not as anxious. And I'm a little bit more uh, uh, skeptical toward the idea that I can find significance or I can find the meaning that I'm looking for uh, by kind of projecting an online persona. So those, those are three things that have been really helpful for me. grateful to Samuel James, the author of Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age, for taking time to join us on The Bounce. There is a link in the show notes for uh, Samuel's book. You can go and find out more about how you can get copies of the book. It's published by Crossway. Again, it's called Digital Liturgies, and uh, information is available in the show notes. There's also information about the Great Commission Collective, a link to our website. If you are interested in church planting or want to find out more about how you can help strengthen local churches that have a gospel-centered approach to life and ministry, check us out. Go to gccollective.org or just click the link you see in the show notes. 
And if you are a fan of The Bounce, you find this podcast helpful, encouraging, spread the word to other pastors you know, like or subscribe to The Bounce in whatever platform you're listening and help us get the word out so that other pastors can be encouraged by these conversations as well. And next time on The Bounce, we want to talk about the importance of a plurality of men providing spiritual leadership in a local church. It's one of the things we feel passionately about here at the Great Commission Collective, the need for there to be a plurality of leaders. And those men need to recognize that their leadership involves shepherding. That's at the heart of what God calls an elder to be and to do. Dr. Tim Whitmer joins us next time to talk about the shepherd leader on The Bounce.